Well, as we continue in Exodus this morning, we're now at the point in Exodus chapter 12 where the people of Israel are finally freed from Egypt. We hear the story this morning of their actual exodus, of their exit from the land of Egypt. We read in those verses in Exodus 12, 29 to 42, that this is indeed the fulfillment of a significant promise of God, um, that this isn't just something that happened to come about as a result of historical circumstances, but rather this is something that came about directly from the hand and by the providence of God himself. And so I want to remind us of that as we go back and read from Genesis 15, 13, and 14, where God actually promises to Abram that his people will be in Egypt, but God will free them. And then we'll go back to earlier in Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, where God first met Moses and there again gave the promise that he would free his people from Egypt. And then we'll jump to the New Testament in 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4, which reminds us that it is the promises of God that give us life. So Nate will read for us the first text, and then Kathy, and then Abby, and then Claire will read the last text for us from Second Peter. So let's listen now to the reading of God's word. Nate, if you want to come on up. Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 to 30 to 42. At midnight, Yahweh struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who is in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve Yahweh as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And Yahweh had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, Besides women and children, a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of Yahweh went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by Yahweh to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to Yahweh by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Genesis 15:13 13 to 14. Then Yahweh said to Abram, Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 14, sorry, 
but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. Exodus chapter 3, verses 20 through 22. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Well, again, as we see in Exodus 12 this morning, God is finally delivering his people. And I say finally because surely for the people of Israel, it had felt like a long wait. Not only had they been in the land of Egypt for over 400 years, but they had been in slavery for many, many years. And not only had they been in slavery for many, many years, but when God had initially promised that they would be delivered from slavery, their slavery did not get easier or lighter, but it got worse, did it not? When Moses first went to Pharaoh, said, let my people go, it made Pharaoh so angry that he made the slavery worse for the people of Israel. And then not only had their slavery gotten worse, but there had been nine plagues before this, and now the Passover, the tenth plague that had fallen upon the land of Egypt. And before this last plague of the Passover, none of these nine other plagues had seemed to move the heart of Pharaoh at all. I mean, Pharaoh had had some moments where he had told Moses that he could leave, but the people couldn't go with him, or the people could leave, but they had to leave their livestock. But Pharaoh had immediately changed his mind. He wasn't yet ready to let the people of Israel go. And so I'm sure that by this 10th plague, by this time, the people of Israel were probably wondering, Are we ever going to leave? Is the promise of God ever really going to come true? I mean, can God really defeat Pharaoh? Pharaoh seems so hard-hearted, so obstinate. Seems like he is not going to change his mind at all. How could God's promise possibly come true? And yet, we see that in the space of one night, really in the space of just a few hours, Pharaoh's heart is changed. And God's people are delivered. Now, no doubt, Pharaoh had his own firstborn son. And so as Yahweh passed through the land of Egypt and as he killed all the firstborn, no doubt Pharaoh himself lost his firstborn son, the heir to the throne. And as Pharaoh himself loses his firstborn, his heart is broken. He realizes that he cannot stand before the God of Israel. He cannot possibly overcome him. And so in that moment of clarity, when Pharaoh finally realizes that he is not stronger than God, he says, yes, I will let the people go. And so in this example, in the example of the hardest of hearts, the example of Pharaoh himself being broken, being shattered, we as believers now 
are to gain hope, are to gain conviction that God truly is able to fulfill his word. He is always able to fulfill his word because we can see that if God could defeat Pharaoh, if he could bring the land of Egypt to its knees, then what is there that God cannot do? What promise is there that God cannot keep? I mean, I'm sure all of us in our lives today are kind of hoping for God to do something for us. You know, maybe it's a struggle with sin that we felt like we've just never been able to overcome and we're wondering, God, can you ever deliver me from this sin that I just seem mired in? Maybe it's a relationship that's broken that you just feel like, God, I just so want this relationship to be repaired, but we feel like, is there any way that, God, you could ever possibly repair this relationship? Maybe it's something more tangible or physical like health problems or money problems. You're just wondering, can God really do anything about this? Well, beloved, as we read in the call to worship, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. The answer to every question we have of, is God able? Can God really do? The answer is yes, he can. And we, today, are to live our lives on the basis of that truth. We're to live our lives on the basis of the reality that God can do what he says he will do. That is what you call faith. And our whole lives are to be lived by faith. And so my argument this morning is that this story of the people of Israel finally escaping Egypt, coming out of Egypt, is a story intended to build, to strengthen our faith, our confidence that God can and will do what he said he will do. And as we gain faith from seeing this fulfillment of God's promise, we ourselves should be strengthened to live by faith and know that God surely will bring about the fulfillment of every single word that he has spoken. Now, as we look at the fulfillment of his promise and bringing the people of Israel out from Egypt, we see that this is not just kind of like a small fulfillment or barely a fulfillment of God's promises as if God just kind of eked out a win. (laughs) Rather, this is a dramatic and powerful fulfillment of all of God's promises. God accomplished great things in bringing his people out from Israel, out from Egypt. First of all, we see that Moses never actually even asked Pharaoh for all the people to be able to leave Egypt permanently, okay? In accordance with what God instructed to Moses, when Moses went to Pharaoh, Moses only ever asked Pharaoh that the people be allowed to go into the wilderness for three days to worship Yahweh, and then they would come back. That's the only request that Moses had ever presented to Pharaoh, and yet Pharaoh had always firmly rejected this idea that they be allowed to go for three days, Moses said, no, you will not ever go. You will stay here. And yet, in this moment, when God finally fulfills his promise, when he fulfills his word, not only does he break Pharaoh so that Pharaoh says, okay, fine, you can go for three days, but then make sure you come back. No, he so fulfills his promise, he so breaks Pharaoh, that Pharaoh actually spits them out so that they never have to return again. This is the extent of the fulfillment of the promise of God. That Pharaoh, the hard-hearted one, the one that would never change his mind, actually completely changes his mind so that the people of Israel are finally and ultimately free. In fact, we see that Pharaoh changes his mind so abruptly and so completely 
that the people of Israel are not even prepared to go, right? I mean, God had told them that they would be allowed to go. God told them that in the Passover would be their moment of deliverance. And I trust that they did believe God in in some good measure. And yet it seems that even the Israelites did not fully comprehend just how quickly God would bring about the fulfillment of his promise. Because they hadn't packed their bags. And as the Feast of Unleavened Bread itself instructed the people of Israel, they hadn't had time to let their bread bake or anything like that. And so they go out of Egypt without any kind of provisions, without bread or any food to eat. And so this itself, the the fact that their bread is unleavened, the fact that they don't have provisions, shows us the fulfillment, the radical fulfillment of the promises of God. And again, this should build our faith, that even if something seems like it could never change, that God can bring about a change in less than 24 hours, beloved, God is able to fully complete to bring about the fulfillment of his word. Now, even though the people of Israel did not have provisions, that doesn't mean that God sent them out empty-handed. This is another way that we see just the magnitude of the fulfillment of his promise that God brings about. Because as God promised over 400 years ago to Abram, as God promised to Moses from the first time he met Moses at the burning bush, As God had promised to the Israelites, they would be able to ask the Egyptians for treasure, for gold, for silver, for these sort of things. And the Egyptians would freely grant them to the Israelites. And so they did. The Israelite people asked the Egyptians for these sort of treasures that they could not leave empty-handed. And God put it in the heart of the Egyptians to even send the people of Israel out with their wealth. And so just consider this, this powerless people, this people that were slaves, that did not have any kind of army, that did not have any kind of ability in themselves to demand anything from Israel, to in any way threaten, uh, sorry, to demand anything from Egypt or to threaten Egypt at all, that God nevertheless brought about such a dramatic imbalance of power that Israel would seem so powerful over the Egyptians that the Egyptians would actually send Israel out with all this wealth, with all this treasure that Israel never could have imagined, never could have asked for if they had simply been relying upon their own strength. Israel gets this through the strength of God. And then the last way that we see just how dramatic the fulfillment of God's word is, is that as Pharaoh sends out Israel, Pharaoh is actually asking Yahweh for a blessing. When Pharaoh sends out Moses, Pharaoh says, go and ask the Lord, ask Yahweh to bless me also. This is the same Pharaoh that just a few chapters ago said, I don't know who Yahweh is. Who is this God? I will not listen to him. And now as he sends out Moses, he says, please ask this God to bless me also. And so again, in the face of all odds, in the face of what seemed to be an absolutely impossible situation, God brings about the fulfillment of his promise and the fulfillment of his word. And so we read in Exodus 12, verse 40, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of Yahweh went out from the land of Egypt. 
Beloved, God kept his word. Now, again, the only analogy that we could possibly have today to what happened in this exodus is if something like a superpower, like the United States of America, was to somehow try to take down some country that has almost no power whatsoever. I don't know, think of Guatemala and Central America or something like that. And of course, in all human reasoning, people would say, no, Guatemala doesn't stand a chance against the United States, right? And of course, they would be right. The United States has all the power, all the wealth, all the military might, all of these things. Guatemala, I'm sure, has next to nothing in compared to us. And yet, if God is on the side of Guatemala, then Guatemala will surely win. And in the same way, the people of Israel, who were slaves in the land of Egypt, the greatest superpower on earth at the time, who 100 out of 100 people would have said, Israel has no hope, God brings about the fulfillment of his word. And how did he bring it about? Did he bring it about because the people of Israel contributed a lot? Because they did the right thing? Because they always followed God and followed the right instructions and because they were always good and because they always listened, they were able to get free. Beloved, that is not at all how it happened. God accomplished this by his own power. This is how Exodus 12 is able to say that at the end of 430 years on that very day, because this is the day that God had planned, this is the day that God had established that his people would leave Egypt. It was not dependent upon the people of Israel. It was not dependent upon their good works, upon their proper actions. It was not even dependent upon their belief per se. It was dependent upon God and his action against Egypt. And because God took the initiative, because he is always determined, because he is always faithful to bring about his word, the people of Israel were surely freed. Again, beloved, I hope you can recognize that if God can accomplish this, if he can free the people of Israel from Egypt, then he can fulfill his word to you. He can fulfill his word in your life. Beloved, a large part of the reason why God has given us his word, why he's given us this Bible, is so that we would know it, so that we would know what God's promises to us are so that we would be able to live by faith in God's promises, right? This is not just a book of information. This is not just a book of history. This is not just a book so that we can know a lot of interesting facts about who God is and about what he's done. This book was given so that our faith would be built, so that as we look toward the future, we can have confidence that God will fulfill his word. See, Scripture says clearly that we are to live by faith. Galatians 2.20, a verse that I'm sure many of you have memorized. Paul says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Right? We live by faith. And what is faith? Well, Hebrews 11.1 tells us, right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Okay, think about that. The assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the assurance of future things, beloved. It is not so much the assurance of past things, right? Even though we believe past things, we have confidence that all the things that God says he accomplished in history are true. But those that confidence in past things is meant, is intended to build our confidence, our faith in future things. 
and things that God will do and things that God will accomplish. If you don't have any faith toward the future, if you don't have any faith that God will accomplish things in days to come, then you do not have faith. If your faith is only founded upon everything that has already happened, but you're totally skeptical towards, well, but I don't know if God's going to do anything in the future, then, beloved, your heart is absent of faith. Faith must be future-looking. It must believe that God will bring about all of his promises to come, even as he brought about all of his promises in days gone by. So that is why we can look at the story of Israel exiting from Egypt and why we can gain hope for the future. Because God has given us his precious and very great promises. As 1 Peter says, he has given us these promises. And just as we see that God kept his promises for over 2,000 years to the Jewish people, even so, we can be confident that God will keep his promises to us in the here and now and in the age to come. Our lives must be built upon confidence that the word of God will come true, that God is always faithful, and that he will never fail us. Now, as we think about the the promises of God and how they can come true in our lives, I want to look at two promises in particular this morning. Two promises, I think, that most clearly reflect what Israel did in exiting out of Egypt. There are two specific exoduses that God has promised for us as his people. And so again, if we have confidence that God truly did draw his people out of Egypt, then we should have confidence that God will also accomplish these exoduses for us, these exits for us. The first promised exodus that I want to look at is the exodus from sin. The exodus from sin. In Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul talks about our salvation as a death to sin. Romans 6 verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Are we we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Okay, do you hear that phrase? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, notice that death to sin is past tense. We who died to sin. And yet, we are to look to the future. Still live in it. We are to reckon, we are to count our sin as dead, because that has already happened in the death of Jesus Christ. And because we count our sin as dead, as we look to the future, we are to know that sin does not have power over us, that we do not need to live in it. And so in this way, our confidence, our faith that Jesus truly has died, our confidence, our faith that God has promised us a death to sin empowers us to march forward into the future, knowing that God's power is promised to us for this very thing, that we will not live in sin. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, I know this promise might seem a little paradoxical, right? Because it does require our action, does it not? 
It requires us to to do something. It requires us to not sin. And so in that way, it seems wholly dependent upon us, right? Like, well, I'm the one that has to stop sinning. I'm the one that has to do this. How can you say that it's a promise of God? Well, beloved, this is the glorious reality that God's promise to us that we will cease from sin is a promise of his power to us for this very purpose. So that we can say, God is strengthening us for this. And we can see it in our lives. Our obedience is not mainly the result of our willpower, of our own energy, of our own insight, or anything like that. Our obedience is mainly the result, 100% the result, actually, of the Holy Spirit working in our lives, working out God's promise in us. And so if we are ever discouraged that we don't feel like we can overcome sin, if we're ever discouraged that sin always seems to have the upper hand, that we always fall into the same habit again and again, the same kind of ugly words when we're mad, the same kind of lust, the same kind of temptation in whatever way that it is, if we have that fear, then we can look to the promise of God that we have indeed died to sin. And we don't have to live in it anymore. And so we know that God will surely bring about his promise. And beloved, I know that so often sin can seem just like that Pharaoh whose heart was so incredibly hard, who did not want to let us go. And that sin can seem like this sin is never going to let us go. It's never going to change its mind. It's always going to maintain its grip on us. It will never set us free. And yet, beloved, for freedom, Christ has set us free. And so we don't present our bodies as material for sin, but we present them to God as material for righteousness. And so, The fight against sin that we wage, we wage not mainly at the level of willpower, not mainly at the level even of habits or actions, but the battle we fight against sin, we wage most centrally at the level of faith, at the level of belief. This is why just a little later on, In Romans 6, Paul says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Beloved, that is the first and foremost battle we must wage every way. The battle of considering. The battle of thinking. The battle of believing. I am dead to sin. God's promise is true. I don't have to live in this. Now, are there other tactics that are important and necessary? Yes, there are other things that we have to do as well. But, again, this is 101. This is the ground floor. Believe that God's promise is true, that the power of sin has been broken, and you no longer have to live in it. So that's the first exodus that we see promised to us in Jesus Christ as an exodus from the power of sin. Just as Israel was freed from the power of Pharaoh, so we are freed from the power of sin. But Scripture teaches us that even this exodus from sin is really just a foreshadowing of a greater exodus that is to come. An even more dramatic and more beautiful exodus that we look forward to, that we hope for. And that is an exodus, an exit from the wrath of God itself. 
an exodus from a dying and decaying world into a world that is full of life and joy and bliss and happiness and wealth forever and ever. And this is where we as Christians live today. We live between these two ages. We live in the old age that is even now coming to an end, the age of sin and death. And we look forward to an age that is coming, the age of light and life where there is no night and there is only one eternal day. Now, again, believing that God fulfills his promise, believing that God will surely bring about this day, that he will surely deliver us from his wrath and bring us into the new heavens and new earth, if we truly believe that God will do this, then this itself, beloved, transforms our lives today. Does it not? I mean, if you knew right now that in a short time you were going to inherit a billion dollars, That transforms your life here and now, does it not? I mean, you might feel bad that you can't afford to get this thing that you want or you can't get that thing that you want. You might feel financial pressure right now. But of course, you won't despair at all, will you? Because you know that you just have to hang on a short while. You'll have a billion dollars in your bank account. And then all the financial difficulty that you're worrying about right now will all be blown away in an instant, right? So, yes, you still feel the pinch, you still feel the weight of the financial difficulty that you're in, but even as you feel that weight, you simultaneously feel this enormous lightness, right? That you really don't have to worry, because even though it is a problem right now, the problem will soon come to an end. And in the same way, beloved, that's how we as believers are to live our whole lives. We know that we live in a world right now that is full of pain that is full of sorrow, that is full of troubles of every kind. I mean, if I were to begin listing all the various ways that our lives simply in this room are troubled, I could be speaking for hours and hours. We are racked by a troubled and troubling world. And yet, all the troubles of this world are made light in comparison, Paul says in Romans 8, to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so if we believe, if we see that God indeed keeps his word, that even as surely as Christ has been risen again from the dead, so surely will we be brought into a new heavens and a new earth that is free from all sin, all sorrow, all sadness. And if we keep our eyes fixed there, knowing that it is an assured reality that it will happen, And all of a sudden, the agony, the pain, the difficulties of this present time seem light in comparison. We don't feel the same heaviness that the world feels. Even though we share in the suffering that the world has, we mainly look forward to the joy that awaits us. So in this way, this promise of a future exodus as we look forward to the day of our full and final redemption, it strengthens us to suffer today. It strengthens us to give up our wealth today, to give up our happiness today, to give up our comfort today, because we know that everything we give up in the here and now is simply an investment in that place where moth cannot eat where rust 
cannot destroy. And we look forward to that beautiful day that is coming. And we live for that day rather than living only in the closed sense of today as if today was never going to end, as if our suffering now is never going to end. We know that it will end because God has promised it and because God's word always comes true. And so, again, beloved, as we look and see how God accomplished this exodus for the people of Israel, how he brought them out from what seemed like an impossible situation, let that embolden your faith that God will surely bring about your exodus from sin in this life. And then he will bring about your exodus from death and from sorrow and suffering and the age that is to come. Now, you ultimately don't get more confidence in the exodus that we have from sin or the exodus that we have from death simply by thinking about your exodus from sin and death. Just by kind of repeating these things to yourself, you will not, by necessity, grow in your faith. If you want to grow in your faith, that your exodus from sin is a reality and your exodus from death is a reality, then there is one other place you need to look, one primary place you need to look to know that God will surely bring about this word. And that place that you need to look is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if you fully and truly believe that Jesus died upon the cross for you and for your sin, And if you truly believe that Jesus rose again from the dead, giving you newness of life, then that is where you will find the confidence to believe that God will surely deliver you from sin here and now, and that he will surely deliver you from the wrath that he has stored up for the judgment to come. Paul summarizes this point in Romans 8.32. This is a verse I hope you all have memorized. If you've never memorized any scripture, memorize this verse. Okay, Romans 8.32. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? How will he not with him freely give us all things? Beloved, this is how all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ himself is the gift of highest price that God could ever possibly have given. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, one with God the Father, one with God the Spirit, God nevertheless sent this beloved son to suffer and to die for you. Beloved, if this beloved Son, if the Son of God himself would come and would suffer and die for you, then what could there possibly be that God will withhold from you? What is there that is more valuable to God? What is there that is harder for God to give up than his own Son? There is nothing that is harder for God. And so we know, we have firm confidence that if Christ truly came, if he truly died for me, if he rose again from the dead for me, then I have every reason to expect God to bring about every other last one of his promises for me in this life and in the life to come. 
And so in this way, beloved, you can go to Scripture and you can ransack it for every single promise that God has for you here, knowing that every single promise will surely come true for you if he gave you Jesus Christ. And so build your life upon the cross of Christ. Build your life upon the reality that God has given you the greatest gift in giving you his Son, And then if he did not withhold him, he will give you all things. Do you have any doubt that God will deliver you from your sins, from your ugly habits, from your shame? Look to the cross. He already gave you his son in death. He will free you from those things. Do you have any doubt that you will enter into the glories of the age to come, that you will escape the judgment of God even though you yourself are a wicked sinner? Look to the cross of Christ. He did not withhold his own son. He will bring you there, beloved. And so as we look to the cross of Christ, as we grow in our belief and our faith that he truly did give us his one, his only, his beloved son, and when we fully believe that, then we know that everything we need in this life, any fear that we may have about provision, relationships, about sin, about whatever it is, we know that they do not need to be a fear. We know that we don't need to worry because God has given his son. And that is the assurance we have that he will keep his word and that he will fulfill every last one of his promises to us. And so would you pray with me now as we intercede for ourselves and for the world around us? Heavenly Father, we praise you that we are not simply saved by uh, the skin of our teeth, that we are not simply saved because we manage most days to be good enough to earn your favor. Rather, we praise you that we are saved on the basis of your work and your power and your grace alone. We thank you, Lord, that You require of us now only to look to you with eyes of faith, only to believe, only to trust that you truly did die and that you truly have risen again. God, I pray that you would generate that faith in our hearts even now. And I pray that as we look to you with eyes of faith in that way, that we will also have faith that if you did not spare him, then you will surely give us all things. And so we thank you, God, for your generosity to us, for the mercy that you show us. Would you please hear us now as we pray to you as your children?